From the heart of Vermont, this podcast is brought to you by Capital City Concerts, a concert series which assembles exceptional musicians from across the globe in remarkable live performances in an intimate venue. Learn more at capitalcityconcerts.org. To be a musician was not anything that I would think of, and I never actually thought I was good enough. It wasn't always perfect enough for me. That came to light a number of years later when I met that area in a hallway at Temple University, and he said to me, uh, Lou, everybody knew you were good except you. It was like an uppercut. It was like a punch in the stomach. But I started thinking about that, and I started taking chances and doing other things, and they led to something. My name is Karen Kevra, and you're listening to Muse Mentors, a podcast about artists and their mentors. Some people say it's not what you know, but who you know. I say it's how you know them. Nearly every guest I've had on Muse Mentors is a friend, and in some cases, close friends and colleagues. My guest today, Lou Cosma, falls into that category. We've been friends for over 25 years. Lou's a big guy, a kind of gentle giant, and I don't know how to say it, but he looks like a double bass player. Lou is one of the most hardworking people I know, and even in his quote-unquote retirement, he maintains a schedule that most 25-year-olds would have trouble keeping up with. Lou is a longtime member of the bass section of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Let that sink in. The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra in New York City at Lincoln Center in the largest opera house in the world. It's Saturday afternoon all over America, and millions of people are sitting back and enjoying something that's become a very special part of their lives. Grand Opera, broadcast live from the Metropolitan Opera House in New York. When you factor in all of the preparation and individual practice needed, playing in that orchestra is more than a full-time job. But even so, it wasn't quite enough for Lou. Lou has been, for his whole life, a committed and generous teacher. He's conducted an array of youth and community orchestras, including the youth orchestras of Essex County in New Jersey, the Turnour Symphony, the New Jersey City University Orchestra, scores of regional and all-state orchestras. And here in my home state, he's been at the helm of the Vermont Philharmonic Orchestra for 21 years. Under his leadership, he's melded that group into as fine a community orchestra as you'll hear anywhere. Lou grew up in Philadelphia and came from a humble, colorful, blue-collar, Italian-American family. He grew up in the 40s and 50s, and he had the kind of family that took the time to be together for important stuff like family gatherings, frequent parties, and home-cooked meals. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie, that's amore. From his grandmother, Lou learned how to make fresh pasta, 
folding it like a piece of yard goods and then cutting it as uniformly as possible into fettuccine strands, while gallons of fresh tomato sauce seasoned with herbs from the family garden simmer for hours on the stove. Lou is unabashedly loyal and a family guy, and I can tell you he's most likely to flash his adorable smile when he's talking about one of his two talented sons. Sharing meals, laughter, and conversation are at the heart of who Lou is. He treasures friendship, and he takes the time, really takes the time, so that an afternoon hang can become an impromptu dinner with bottles of big Italian red wines. Lou relishes listening to music, great storytelling, or telling truly corny jokes like this one. Ernestine schumann Hank goes into a drugstore and says, Sir, do you have any deodorant? And he says, menins? He says, no, vimins. <laughs> True story. Lou wears his heart on his sleeve, especially when it comes to music. A beautiful lyric or a change in harmony can move him to tears. I asked him about his earliest musical memories when we spoke. When I was two years old, I climbed up to the 78 RPM Victrola and put on records, and apparently I recognized the records all the time. Even if they mixed them up, I found the record. Recently, I wanted to know what one of those records was, and I, I found the title and the recording it was called La Zarina. La Zarina. I kept humming this melody since I was one and a half years old <laughs> and uh, came up with it. I was born in Philadelphia to Angelina and Alfred. In fact, my name is actually Louis Alfred Cosmo, is my name. And Luigi was my mother's father. They were a blue collar family. My mother stayed at home generally. And my father was a tool and die maker. He worked for a company called Ocean City Fishing Reels. And he used to make the models for the fishing reels. And uh, my father, my uncle, and my grandfather worked here. So these sound like they were people who were good with their hands. Oh, they were very good with their hands. I mean, they would, they even got uh, government uh, jobs, which meant that it had to be not to the thousandth of an inch, but to parts of a thousandth of an inch. <laughs> My mother and father played music, but played by ear. My father played guitar, my mother played accordion, piano, and organ, and it was kind of like um, playing the tarantellas and the various songs at family events. Do you feel that you identify pretty strongly with that Italian ancestry? Absolutely. But one day, when I was in the seventh grade, the principal of my school came down to the room and asked a, another student, Carol Zimmel, and myself to come with him. And I was going, uh-oh. Why am I? Yeah, uh-oh. It was a big uh-oh. I didn't do anything. Not that I knew of. So he took us to a room, opened up this closet, and he said, 
I have a cello and a bass. I want you to come back tomorrow and tell me which one of you is going to play which instrument. I went home and I spoke to my parents and the idea that they used to play at parties was simple for them. Well, if you had a bass, that would be really great when we play at the family functions. And so I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll tell them I'm taking the bass. So, learned some of the changes for the songs that I heard all my life at these parties and that my grandmother would sing and uh, folks who came to the parties would sing and just started playing along. Yep. I left Philadelphia because my parents moved to Bucks County, a town of Warminster. How old were you when that move happened? I was uh, a ninth grader. I went to Warminster to a high school called William Tennant High School, which was kind of uh, regional, maybe four or five towns fed into it. And they had a fantastic music program. And there were two educators there. One was Mario Trezza, and the other was Gil Guglielmi. And something happened. I just really, really enjoyed music, started playing a lot with the stage band. When I got there and they heard that I was a bass player, Gil Guglielmi grabbed me right away and said, you know, you need to play in the stage band. And I remember the Jersey bounce, you know. <laughs> Gil Guglielmi himself was a great saxophone player teacher so he really knew the style he was a professional musician all his life he got a dance band really really going quite well and Mario Trezza was a very fine violinist and he had one of the best orchestras in Bucks County he took me under his wing and I played in the orchestra there are pieces today that I played with him like the last sprig of Edward Grieg that moved me at the time we played them, haunted me, and I never understood why. And about 15 years ago, a singer at the Met told me what the words were from the Greek song that the melody came from, Opus 34. And it was amazing. My imagination ran away in the right direction with what Greek was getting at. And what was that? Well, this is a hard one for me to talk about, still. It, it's the story of a guy who uh, comes out of his house one day and he said, oh, why is today so fantastic? How come I hear the stream like I've never heard it before? How come I hear the birds like I've never heard it before? The pond has iced over. And at this point, Greg uses Ponticello, which gives you a very icy sound. You know, this is amazing. It's like the first time I'm hearing it. Or is it the last? The other thing that shaped Lou Cosma mightily was his relationship with his bass teacher and mentor, Edward Arian. Ed Arian was a Renaissance man. He had not one, not two, but three remarkable careers. 
His first career was as a bass player from 1947 to 1967 with the great Philadelphia Orchestra under Eugene Ormandy. Toward the end of his time there, Ed challenged the moneyed elite board of the orchestra and led an eight-week strike that got the musicians their first guaranteed 52-week salary. This was a really big deal. It was the first contract of its kind, and it led the way for other orchestras. After leaving the Philadelphia Orchestra, Ed Arian went to Bryn Mawr College and earned a doctorate in political science there in 1969. Interestingly, his 157-page doctoral dissertation was nothing short of an assault on Eugene Ormandy and his Philadelphia Orchestra board. The dissertation became a book, which is still available, and it's called Bach, Beethoven, and Bureaucracy, The Case of the Philadelphia Orchestra. In that book, he called them out on a number of things and wrote that the orchestra had become a performing machine devoted to standard repertory, music which can be rehearsed quickly and antagonistic to contemporary music and composers. As for the orchestra board, he wrote, the only qualification has been inclusion in the social register. Right around this time, Drexel University snatched him up. He set up a first-of-its-kind arts administration program there and served for 20 years. Ed Arian became a trailblazing arts management consultant to such groups as the San Diego Symphony Orchestra and the Southwest Florida Orchestra, and later in life became a visiting professor in arts administration at the Wharton School and at UCLA. Not only that, but Dr. Arian was appointed chairman of the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts in 1979 and served for six years. It's clear that Lou Cosma learned a thing or two from his mentor, his willingness to work with musicians on their level, his generosity of spirit, and probably most importantly, his love of music. It was at Temple University in the 60s and 70s when Ed Arian was an instructor of double bass that he came to work with the young Lou Cosma. So when did you find your first private teacher and who was that? Well, my first private teacher was Ed Arian. Oh, wow. Went right to the top. So what happened was I was up high in the section of many of these regional and all-state orchestras but I hadn't taken lessons. So here it was about the middle of the 11th grade. And I was playing in a local musical theater performance and they were doing a Sigmund Romberg operetta called The New Moon. Love came to me and and one night, the timpanist, who was a young fellow, brings in timpani that I have never seen in my life. They were round pedals and wooden tripods and they had chains on them. So I said, Bill, whose are these? He said, my dad's. So on a Friday night performance, Bill comes over to me and he says, I'd like to introduce you to my dad. And he came over Hi, my name is Dan Hanger. I'm the timpanist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I said, oh, it's a pleasure to, to meet you. And he said, well, do you have a private teacher? I said, no. And he said, 
The Philadelphia Musical Academy is offering $5,000 scholarships for bass players. And I want you to call this gentleman, Ed Arian. He's a friend of mine and tell him that I spoke to you. So I called him the next day and he said, well, come out to my place and let me hear you play. Well, I went to my first lesson, drove there. He met me at the door and I met his wife, Yvette, and I also met his daughter. I unpacked the bass and I started playing an etude, a scale, and a movement of an A minor sonata by Marcello. And he demonstrated one thing on a small bass that he had at home. And I went, oh my God, that's the sound you can make on this instrument. What was Ed Arian like as a teacher? I had this feeling, particularly when I went to him as a know-nothing, that he took whatever the positives of the talent, if you want to call it talent, that you had. He took that and worked with it, but also started directing you and feeding you the things that you needed to know to round it out. So that I always remember it as a very, very positive experience working with him. I wanted to circle back to a quote. I think that this quote says so much about your mentor and in some ways kind of sums up his life. The important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. That was a poster on his wall at Drexel. You know, when I hear that, it sums up Ed. It just sums up Ed and I think the way that he lived. That's why I think he fought for the underdog, fought for what he thought was right. What I had not realized, that he was very active in the politics of the orchestra. And in fact, he was the chairman of the committee when the Philadelphia Orchestra got one of the first 52-week contracts that any orchestra ever got in the United States. He writes in his book about greeting the King of Sweden in a receiving line on Saturday night and being in the unemployment line on Monday morning. That's what it was like in one of the greatest orchestras of the world. He and Fred Hinger, the timpanist, used to run an ice cream truck in the summertime. It just boggles my mind. I'll be back with my guest, Lou Cosma, in just a moment. Thanks to the city of Montpelier, Vermont, the administrators, city staff and workers, and also the area merchants, restaurants, organizations, newspapers, places of worship, and community members who have supported Capital City Concerts for over 20 years. Capital City Concerts is proud to be a part of Montpelier, the smallest state capital, but one of the best and most vibrant. 
Ed Arian, like everyone before him, was influenced by one of the great alums of the Philadelphia Orchestra, the French oboe player Marcel Tabuteau. Tabuteau's ideas about phrasing and musicality made their way to Lou and pretty much all sentient musicians from the 1950s onward. Well, here was my teacher, Ed Arian, a bass player who talked about how everyone, including the pianists and the string players and the bass players, went to Tabuteau's classes. So I learned about that. It wasn't about the bass. It was about music. It was about making music. What specifically do you remember a way of thinking that came from Tabuteau? Well, I'm sure it had to do with phrasing, Mm -hmm. because when we would play an exercise, it wasn't just an exercise. There were points where you had to phrase a scale to a downbeat, even though it wasn't written in the music to do anything. I remember in high school learning about phrase grouping. And, you know, as musicians, we get tied to the notation and Rhythmic notation especially is very organized and it makes it easy to count. It's, it's very mathematical, but it kind of goes against how we would phrase or really make music out of it. So it was this idea of phrase grouping. Say you have four groups of 16th notes. You tend to look at it as one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, that it's starting on one. What I learned was that one wasn't where it started, that one was the point of arrival. It's where you were going, one, two, three, four, one, three, four, one, as if these groupings of notes kind of rolled into one another a little bit like ocean waves. Well, I was just going to ask you if you studied with that area. (laughs) I teach the same way, and I hear his voice on passages when I'm teaching students because, you know, it works and they get it. From the first lesson on, I had a great feeling about him. We ended up later being very, very close. I had a wonderful father, but he was like a second father to me. And when I was going through a number of things, I would call him and talk to him and get his advice. And he was just terrific, just terrific. You know, I wonder what he would be thinking now, especially especially right now with the difficulties that are going on with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, you know, almost an entire year of these musicians not getting their paychecks. And I think of this in light of the kind of work that he did for musicians' rights. He would have been beside himself. And again, work for the average person, work for the musicians. But he really cared about these folks. He cared about the orchestra. For decades, a position in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra has been one of the most coveted jobs among professional orchestra musicians the world over. Consider this, your place of work is the focal point of the arts in the United States, Lincoln Center in New York City. From that spectacular plaza with its enormous circular fountain, you are lured into the Opera House by the two Marc Chagall fixture murals. The Opera House feels like a city unto itself, and it should. After all, the place employs over 3,000 people. 
Entering the Met lobby is breathtaking. The swooping, cantilevered staircases lead to the glorious fan-shaped auditorium, all gold and burgundy, along with the rosewood paneling that's famous for its acoustic qualities. The space is both capacious and cavernous. It can accommodate an audience of 4,000, and it draws your eye upward to the blingy but impressive Sputnik chandeliers, which magically retract into the ceiling when the house lights dim at the start of each show. And then there's the music. This is where Lou Cosma punched his time card for 36 years. But for all of its glory, this is a tough job. There can be as many as four or five long rehearsals a week, along with the expectation of playing four operas in any given week and not necessarily the same show. The schedule varies from week to week with different days off, plus sometimes there are double headers on Saturdays. And don't forget, operas are long. A typical symphony concert might run 90 minutes to two hours, but that's short for an opera. And if it's one of Wagner's operas, you're looking at anywhere from three to six hours. It can feel like a marathon to a musician and requires laser concentration into the wee hours. Most nights you're working and rarely get to have dinner with the family, not to mention tucking the kids into bed. You earn your paycheck. Tell me about your audition at the Met. To be a musician was not in anything in, that I would think of. I mean, uh, to be a teacher made sense to me. And I never actually thought I was good enough to be a bass player, <laughs> a professional musician. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't always perfect enough for me. That came to light a number of years later when I met Ed in a hallway at Temple University, and he said to me, uh, Lou, everybody knew you were good except you. It was like an uppercut. It was like a punch in the stomach. But I started thinking about that and about a few other things he said, and I started taking chances and, and, and doing other things, and they led to something. So I was on a job with a very good friend and bass player, Linda McKnight, and I told her about seeing this Met audition. And she said, Lou, you should take that audition. They're going to like your playing. Really? I don't know anything about opera. Just check it out. So I did. And uh, I did very well with that audition. I did not win the audition. But at that point, they started using an audition as a way to substitute with the orchestra. So I did that until 1985, when I took another audition for the Met. And that was behind a screen. No one knew who I was. And I tied for the job. And I had to play a second final with the other person that I tied with. Now, here was the unusual part. I was 39 years old. And no one was winning a job at 39 years old at that time. He was 22 and, you know, a real stallion. And by the way, a great bass player and a really, really good friend. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly another player had announced retirement and the committee 
had gone to the management and said, look, we had a tie. Lou has been playing with us for a number of years as an associate, and can he come into the orchestra? And that's how I got my regular position. That makes all the sense in the world, too, because, you know, there you had had a successful audition. But they also knew you. They knew you as a person. They knew you as a team player. I have to believe in some ways that's got to be as important as the kind of chops a player might bring to the job. This may be the elephant in the room. You mentioned James Levine, who conducted the Met for 40 years, but was called out for sexual impropriety and was initially suspended and then fired in 2018. Now, it seems to me that there was quite a lot of overlap in your tenure and his. So I wonder what it's like for you to look back, and especially now in these recent years, kind of looking back through the lens of the Me Too movement. Well, it's something that I hesitate to talk about, but I'll say this. What happened to Jimmy and other parties was sad for all concerned. He did some wonderful things for the Met, obviously, brought the orchestra to a new stature, And it was always a great opera orchestra, but it wasn't the greatest. However, his insistence on sound, like he used to say, there's nothing like a piano or a pianissimo with an orchestra like this, because it's like a 16-cylinder Rolls-Royce just cruising slowly down the street. But when you need the power and step on the gas, (laughs) so... I did admire that he wanted us to be in the echelon of the great orchestras. And I'll tell you what it is. We had a different sound. When I was growing up and earlier in the 1900s, orchestras had a base of European players generally. So the Boston Symphony was made up of many French players. The Philadelphia Orchestra started with uh, the German Orchestra Society. The Philadelphia Orchestra was really known for having an extraordinary string sound. After a while, especially in the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, a lot of that disappeared with New York, Boston. Cleveland, Chicago. Cleveland was always known as incredibly clean playing. The Metropolitan Opera Orchestra sounded like the greatest singers of the world, and that made it really different. The idea of singing, which is really where it all comes from. I always thought that there was a quality that we could surmount anything by Having heard some of the greatest voices of the time, there's no way not to emulate the most beautiful phrase that you heard from a Joan Sutherland. Or a a 
Pavarotti or a Domingo. I don't want to mention any names because everyone, Carlo Berganzi, oh my God. What a great, great singer. Mention names. Go ahead. Mention names. Oh, Alfredo Kraus, Renata Scotto. Jesse Norman. The great Russian bass. Girov, Nikolai Girov. Pavarotti, Pavarotti when he was younger, Pavarotti when he was older. fuss around them. It was deserved. They were really great singers. So, I mean, I I really do believe that the friends uh, that I met there and musicians that I met there, I met at a time that was another golden age. When it comes to an opera, one stands out to me. Tosca, to me, may be one of the most perfect operas. Not only is the music gorgeous, but Puccini, with his librettist, knew how to set the story so that there's this huge buildup. And in 30 seconds, it's like turning your hand over. When Scarpia betrays her at the end, it's always amazing when she says, we will meet before God. It's very powerful, very powerful. much beloved as a conductor and I know that your orchestra members have genuine affection for you so I wonder what things stand out as what you most want to drive home to your musicians you know when I work with orchestras I pound dynamics when I do a demonstration of what a dynamic can really be I have the concertmaster play a certain note let's say a, just a D string 
at a soft pitch like pianissimo. And then I point to each player to come in and play two Ps. Well, if I'm looking up at the rest of the orchestra, particularly the wind players, they start to smile because they never heard anything like that. I just started to smile as you said it. It is an amazing sound. The music can call for something like that, but rarely do they get there. And it's a never ending battle. Levine and other conductors would have to tell us, you know, he would say, you get louder, but you don't go back to the original dynamic. And I will tell students, you get louder, but you don't go back to the original dynamic. <laughs> when I find the tension gets high, maybe because something has to be played over and over again, I always stop the rehearsal. Not an official stop, but I say, just, just a second, you know, and I will mention a story from either the Met or one of my experiences. And what happens is I think it breaks tension at that point. And when we get back to it three or four minutes later, it's much easier to rehearse those passages again. And one of the players once said to me, you know, Lou, we love your stories because you don't tell them like you're bragging about, I know Pavarotti, because you actually worked with him. And you tell the story in a way that's very personal. Once saw an interview by Bruno Walter, the great conductor, and someone once said to him, Mr. Walter, what do you think makes a great conductor? Your baton technique, your knowledge of the music? And he said, no, in his wonderful Austrian accent, he said, no, to impart your love of music. I believe it. I believe that it's really important to try to show your love of what you're trying to get across to the folks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muse Mentors. You know, we don't charge to listen to this podcast, but that doesn't mean that there aren't real costs associated with it. So how about heading over to musementors.com, lending a hand. You can make a one-time donation or become a Patreon subscriber in any amount, whether you've contributed before or if this is your first time. Thank you. Until next time, Set a date to watch one of the Metropolitan Opera performances at metopera.org. Whether you already love opera or you're new to it, you'll be glad you did.